Well, hello and good afternoon. Thank you so very much for joining us on the radio program. We got a big show ahead. How's it looking? It is looking so good, Alan. Oh, thank you. That is great. It is going to be a good show ahead. Doug Ford is with us for the hour. How are you feeling, Doug? This is incredible. That is great. I hope you all had a wonderful weekend, the premiere and everybody. I hope that you were able to survive What can sometimes be tricky, you know, those family get-togethers. I hope that you had a weekend where there was, you know, no emotional scarring. Premier, uh, how'd you do? I was successful. Thank you. Thank you, Premier. We are going to be talking more to Doug Ford throughout the hour, and we are going to be discussing an email that he sent to me this morning, and I just... I am just going to read the top line from the email I got from Doug Ford this morning. It goes like this. Alan... You aren't a baby, and the government shouldn't treat you like one. We will discuss whether or not that is actually true or not just ahead on the Alan Carter radio program. Outrageous! But first, we begin with Camille Karamali, who is a global news reporter and joins me now from Oshawa. Camille, you're working on a breaking news story. Uh, What's happening where you are? That's right. Well, this home is still taped off. And uh, let me describe it for you, Alan. It's completely been gutted by an overnight fire. This door is completely broken. And it's a multi-level home here. And the windows have been completely shattered in. Uh, uh, The damage, the extent of it is is quite jaw-dropping. It's been completely hollowed out. The insides are completely full of ash and soot. And the windows shattered. Lots of of, uh, debris on the front lawn, too. And uh, the surprising thing about this fire is that it's not an ordinary one that we uh, normally see because it started off with a call of a stabbing. And so what ended up happening at around 12.20 last night, police got a call for a stabbing. Uh, They chased the suspect into this home where they do say he he lives. And then the 44-year-old man ended up barricading himself inside. Police surrounded the home and he wouldn't come out saying that he has weapons inside. And then it escalated because uh, about two hours after that, around 2 a.m., was when flames started licking the roof of this home here, of this multi-story building. And so uh, fire crews started being preoccupied with that. This gentleman uh, thought he could escape through the window, to the second-story window, so he tried to make a run for it. And then police ended up uh, finding him and arresting him a short time later, and now he's facing several charges including arson. So quite a busy night for Oshawa Fire and Durham Police here. Camille Karamali is a global news reporter, and you can see Camille's report and the incredible video of that fire and what firefighters and officers had to face tonight. Camille, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome, Alan. All right, so that, of course, is tonight on uh, Global News, beginning at 5.30 on the television, and, of course, you can listen to the simulcast on this radio station uh, beginning at 6 o'clock, but let's turn our minds back to Doug Ford. Doug, are you back? What have you, you been up to? Uh, I'm protecting uh, democracy. That's nice. That's nice. Uh, I understand you were just at the chorus, uh, in the chorus washrooms. Uh, what were you going to be doing? I'm going to sanitize that place from top to bottom. Well, Lord knows it needs it. Let's talk beer and wine, and for that, Martin Redcon is a uh, columnist for the Toronto Star at Queen's Park and probably knows... The whole beer and wine and the the laws around it better than any journalist in this province. Martin, thanks for being on. My pleasure. 
Let me just read you this uh, email I got from Doug this morning. First of all, he contends that I'm not a baby, which uh, I will leave for another day to discuss. He then goes on to say, we are making changes. Soon you're going to be able to pick up a case of beer or a bottle of wine at a corner store across Ontario. Why? Because why not? I'm going to stop right there. I got a feeling there might be a why not in here somewhere, Martin. Where would that be? I would say, correction, I would say there's not a reason. I would say there's hundreds of millions of reasons why not. And those hundreds of millions of reasons are hundreds of millions of dollars that it would cost to break the agreement that was signed by the government of Ontario, largely with the support of many people, not everyone, but the government that first allowed beer to get out of the LCBO and out of the beer store and into 450 supermarkets across the province. Now, some people want it to be in more places. That's a fair argument. But what are you prepared to pay to break that deal that was signed in, what, 2015, Alan, I think? Yeah, 2015 by the Wynn government. Now, you know, the, the play here might be just the Ford government says this was just terrible governing governance by our predecessor, and we just got to eat this because the, you know that's what the people want. That's a that's a very big meal to swallow. You'd need to have a lot of beer to to wash that down because that would leave a very foul taste. Do you remember Alan the six million dollar man? That was the head of Hydro One. Mayo Schmidt. Doug Ford mm-hmm. promised to fire and it wouldn't cost us a penny. Except when he fired that guy, it caused so many knock-on effects that Hydro One had to pay a $100 million penalty fee to the American company it was in the process of buying because it was no longer qualified to do that after the government interference. So are we now going to interfere in a contract that was signed in good faith by a liberal government? Yes, a democratically elected government that actually did something that no other government had done before. A progressive conservative leader and premier, Mike Harris, had promised to bring beer into uh, out of the beer store. Uh, David Peterson had promised to do it 20, 30 years ago. No one had ever done it before. Tim Hudak was talking about doing it back down. And so we went ahead and did it as a, as a province, and now the province, the provincial government, wants to go back on its word just because there was a change in government? Fine. But it'll cost a lot of money. Yeah, um, I, I, I might shout gas plants here, just if I might, because I know they don't line up exactly these two things. But what you are talking about, this, and I have it right here in front of me, it is, I'll just uh, flip it open, that is the Ontario Master Framework Agreement, signed September 22nd, 2015, between the Brewers Retail, Labatt Brewing Company, Molson Canada, Sleeman Breweries, and Her Majesty the Queen in Right of Ontario. And this is precisely what Martin is talking about. And in here, Martin, remember that they asked the beer store, they actually demanded the beer store, which, you know, not exactly the greatest retail experience, that the beer store had to spend $100 million to upgrade their stores. And in return for that, they get to continue to be the place where you get a multi-pack, the place where you get beer. That's right. And... You would know, because we've talked about this many times before, and I've written many columns about this, I am no fan 
of the beer store. I, you know, people will, will, will say, oh, are you an apologist for the beer store, for a foreign-owned beer store? Well, it's not foreign-owned completely anymore because as part of that deal that you just read from, there are a couple of dozen Ontario brewers that are part of the beer store. I never loved the beer store, but I didn't want it to go away. I just didn't want it to have a stranglehold on beer sales in this province. And the idea that we are going to, that it's <clears throat> so important such a top priority to have beer in convenience stores. I mean, uh, convenience stores, I am surrounded where I live, Midtown, uh, by three different supermarkets, some of which are open until 11 o'clock at night, and one or two of which will sell beer. So why am I going to have my premier, my current premier, spend hundreds of millions of dollars to break a deal that was signed by the government of Ontario? Not the Liberal Party, but the government of Ontario, because you just read her in Her Majesty's name, just to get it into some convenience stores that are, that are hurting because no one goes there anymore? It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't buck a beer, up. buck a beer, buck a beer. See, that doesn't add up, too, because if you, if you think about... Buck a beer, buck a beer, buck a beer. If you think about that, do, do you know how much money the provincial treasury forego, for, you know, just went without because of that? $11 million in potential revenue because of a uh, scheduled increase in the provincial beer tax that the government brought in. So it comes with a cost, Martin. And uh, don't forget, there were also incentives. Doug Ford was so desperate to avoid the shame of going back on his word when he promised people falsely or misleadingly buck a beer. There was no such thing. When's the last time you've seen or found buck a beer in this province? Maybe on a special holiday, Loblaws will have a promotion, President's Choice Beer for three days. That's not what I call buck a beer. That's a price point that, that existed in the history in the mists of time, 12 or 13 years ago, and Doug Ford promised he could bring it back, but he didn't. He broke that promise. It fizzled. But in, he was so desperate that he started to give incentives to some of these brewers, better shelf space, more promotional advertising. That costs money, too, and all because it was a promise that never made sense. Dirty tricks. Martin Redcon is the Queen's Park columnist for the Toronto Star, a friend of this program. Uh, Doug Ford, what did you think of his segment? Wow. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. That's Doug Ford uh, reacting to what we're talking about today, which is whether or not we should actually have beer and wine in corner stores and what the cost of that is. And I'm not just talking about societal and kids getting liquored and all the rest of that. Martin, thank you so much for being on the program. Cheers, Alan. Welcome back to the program. You know, we have a lot of fun in this program with our little audio board here. And, you know, people who we say are with us and aren't really with us, like when we say Doug Ford's with us and we say, Doug, what are you up to? Feathering each other's nest. And then you just kind of make that into a joke. But then every once in a while the phone rings and you go, uh-oh, hey, ladies and gentlemen, I am really honored to welcome to the radio program, to my radio program, Douglas Robert Ford Jr., the 26th and current Premier of Ontario. Premier, thank you so much for being on the program. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for saying all the <laughs> misleading, misleading stuff. Alan, that forced me to call because it was just uh, almost hit three telephone poles. Listening <laughs> to these characters mislead the public, but that, that's typical. That, that's typical. But let's straighten out a couple of the okay. You go accusations that you went with Mayo, Mayo Smith. Uh, let, let's be very uh, honest about what what happened there and about the utility company that. He tried to buy out West, and why why they did that is beyond uh, beyond me. But the good news is. 
yes, when uh, we ended up getting uh, rid of Alan Smith, then then the market, then we ended up uh, actually, let, let's go back, the regulators canceled the deal out in uh, out west there in Washington State. And then what happened there is the markets reacted positively. Actually, the stock market, Alan, went, uh, the stock went up uh, for Hydro One because it was a terrible deal. It was a terrible deal for the taxpayers. It would have cost us hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And, uh, again, the market uh, told the truth. Uh, the, the price went up. But was, so isn't it, is it not true, Premier, that the regulators cited political interference in Hydro One, your government's political well, interference, and that's well, why they canceled no, that? Well, that, 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 that's not 100% accurate. Again, we have to go back to the root cause. Why are we investing in, uh, you know, uh, power companies, uh, per se, out in out, out west that also burn coal and all all the other uh, all the other uh, areas that people don't like so anyways at the end of the day the market went up the stock went up for the shareholders of ontario so that's uh that's mr schmidt on to the the beer stores here alan i don't know if you you don't think the people of uh people of ontario are mature enough to go be able to go into Let's say a Costco, a Loblaws, walk by, grab a bottle of uh, wine, a couple, couple steaks or a case of beer, uh, like everyone else uh, in North America except Ontario. Uh, Quebec has 7,000 retail outlets. We have 460-some-odd uh, retail outlets. There's nothing wrong with going into the grocery uh, store and picking up a, a, a case of beer or a bottle of wine. Now, as for the... The discussions we're having with the beer store, I can't get into it, but uh, just arbitrarily, you guys are throwing out $200 million. Again, not accurate. You're misleading the people and the public when you when you say statements like that, or the Toronto Star does, but that's not uh, very surprising. Uh, to to be fair, I, I did not quote any numbers, but I, I, I do well, take did. your point. I take your point, and yeah. Martin did quote some yeah, numbers, Martin. absolutely. The, the reality is uh, Molson's and Labatt's and Schleeman's, they're, they're, uh, their sales are going to go up. Uh, we put it in 10,000 stores. Even even if people buy one beer out of those stores, that's 10,000 additional beers a day. Uh, the argument, uh, you know, it's just uh, it's not uh, it's not very beneficial to for the people of Ontario. Do do you uh, would you agree to some sort of financial penalty to get out of the master framework agreement to allow an expansion of beer and wine? Would you accept that? Well, we, we aren't at that point right now. We're negotiating uh, with a beer store, and I'm sure you appreciate Alan. We can't get into all the details, but uh, we don't believe uh, anyone should have a monopoly on on uh, beer and wine. And, and right now, even the previous government, they picked winners and losers. So certain retail chains uh, ended up getting uh, you know uh, getting the ability to sell to sell wine and, and beer. Other ones uh, didn't. Now let's get on to this buck of beer. The buck of beer was a challenge. It was nothing more than a challenge. A uh, few uh, places took us up on it. There's still buck of beer every day into the LCBO. You go in there, and a couple beer companies uh, were able to go in there. And and yes, uh, first to admit they did get uh, good shelf space and and good for them, and and uh, didn't cost the taxpayers. But there's but anything. there is a cost to that, even if it's not like a dollar figure. There's there is. I mean, you're basically, you are dangling something for them to be able to uh, do something that you po- was a political promise by you. Well, they changed, actually, they changed it around, talking to the LCBO, they, they changed it around from beer companies, liquor companies, to wine companies. But let's go to the $11 million. They, I call it the elevator tax that, uh, that you said we're losing $11 million. You're, you're correct on that, Alan. If we would have increased taxes, 
right. like the levels did, yes, we would have got $11 million. But if we would have increased taxes on everything like the levels did, we'd have a lot uh, a lot more than uh, what we have. But, uh, Alan, uh, we're, we're, I think everyone's missing it. We, had, we inherited a $15 billion deficit. And uh, even you would admit, Alan, that uh, our, our, our budget was pretty liberal, to say the least. I think we caught everyone off guard. Uh, we got everyone flat-footed. Was it a super staunch conservative budget? No, it wasn't. But we're going to make sure that we balance in a reasonable, responsible, and a thoughtful manner over the next uh, five years. So by no means are we in there cutting and slashing. To the contrary, we get, we get uh, the Toronto Sun criticizing us because we ain't cut enough. And then you get the Toronto Star saying we cut too much. So I guess we, we hit it right in the middle there. You, you went Goldilocks because, I mean, I, I have always said that, Premier, too, that if, if the left and the right hate me at the end of the day equally, then I've done something, I've done my job correctly. So I, I take your point, but I, I suppose I would ask that subsequent to the release of the budget, sort of dribbled by dribble, buried in the document, we see things like, cuts to public health, cuts to libraries, and so on. And so I think there might be a concern that there's more in this budget than we first thought. Well, let's talk about public health. And, and just for the listeners, it's, uh, it's not hospitals and that. Uh, we actually increased the budget to health care, per se, $1.3 billion and $17 billion into new hospitals. But yes, public health, uh, we went from 75% shared services down to 50. So the municipality pays 50, we pay 50. Those are the folks that go around and uh, go into restaurants and put the little sticker on saying it's uh, safe to eat here. But again, Alan, we have to, if we want to put the additional money into health and education, increase the budget to education by $700 million, the, the things that matter to people, we have to make sure we drive efficiencies in a reasonable and responsible way. And I think we uh, we nailed it on this on this budget, Alan. Mike Schreiner today, uh, of course, the leader of the Green Party, criticizing your government. Of course, that's his job, so we'll take that yeah. with a grain of, a grain of salt, of course. But, yeah. uh, quote-unquote, the government is being reckless with our future. This in relation to the changes from the Environment Minister on um, protecting endangered species. How do you respond to those kinds of criticisms? Well, well, again, he, he's making it sound like there's an endangered wolf somewhere. We're just, it's, just not, it's just not happening. He's just not accurate. Uh, we're going to make sure that we respect all endangered uh, species. And if he actually read his notes, he'd, he would actually see that. And uh, I'll give, give you an example. I'll use the wolf. Let's use the wolf. So uh, say there's, there's a wolf, there's uh, 100 wolves up in Ontario, and then, because animals don't know any borders. And in New York State, there's 3,000 of them. Well, they'll say that the wolves are endangered here in, and I'm just using this as an example, by the way. They'll, they'll say uh, they're endangered in Ontario. Well, no, they aren't endangered. There's, there's you know, three or 4,000 of them uh, just a couple kilometers away. Again, animals don't know borders. They crisscross back and forth, and uh, we take it very seriously. Uh, we, we do not want to go after uh, endangered species, and we want to make sure we, we protect any endangered species, which we will, and if he reads his notes, You'll find that in the notes. Now for the carbon tax. The carbon tax, uh, Alan, uh, as far as we're concerned, it's a tax grab. We uh, agreed that we're going to hit our 30% uh, uh, regarding the, the Paris Agreement, and uh, we're at 22. Actually, the new report came out. I think we're at 22.5 or 22.6% uh, in reductions. As the rest of the country is positive 5, we're doing our job. We're going to continue being environmentally friendly. We have a strong environmental plan. Uh, 
and uh, we're going to go after the big emitters. And what's happening federally, they're picking and choosing. They're ignoring the big emitters and trying to tax everyone. And that, that's just not a, a fair system. Premier, if I might quickly move to legal aid, the budget cut legal aid by 30% or $133 million this year. And if I can read a quote to you from Aaron Simpson with the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers, quote, these abrupt changes will have dire consequences. I'm wondering if you have thought through or your government has thought through the human consequence of this kind of cut. Again, uh, not accurate. This, this, this is what drives me crazy, Alan, that no one does their research. They, they need to be more informed. Uh, if they actually looked into it, uh, there was more money being spent uh, on, on lawyers' fees and less cases. So when you weigh it out, you're thinking, okay, the lawyers are making more money, and the people that actually need uh, the system to help them, they aren't getting the, the, the proper support. You know, we have to hold these people accountable. When there's more money to the lawyers and less money to the people, I got an issue with it. The head of Legal Aid Ontario, though, Premier, says that the funding cut from the government means the agency's lawyers will stop accepting new immigration and refugee clients uh, already. So that is a real-world consequence of something that you announced in the budget. Well, for, first of all, let, let's go back to the immigration, and we can, we can break it into a few tiers here. Uh, immigrants that have been waiting in line uh, for some, sometimes four, five, six years, and their family members are here, they're frustrated. I get calls all the time. Those are the people I'm pro-immigrant. Those are the people that support us, the people that come here and work hard and pay their taxes and raise their families. And then you, you have the refugees. I have no problem with refugees. They're leaving a war-torn country. They're in line. Then let's talk about the 40,000 illegal uh, border crossers. They go up, they land in uh, LaGuardia, hop on a bus, uh, go up to Lacombe. And by the way, I don't blame these folks. I, I'd be doing the same if I lived in a, in a country that, uh, that isn't providing the lifestyle that, for myself and my family. So I get it. But we have rules. You can't jump the line. No matter this, where you are in the world, you can't jump the line. 40,000 of them land here, go through an illegal border crossing, come to Toronto, and then the government, the federal government, owes us $200 million, owes the, the, the city $11 million. Our infrastructure can't handle it. We can't even take care of our own people, not mentioning 40,000 uh, other people. But, but this is legal that. aid, Premier. This is, this, this is legal aid to people who are here, who are looking for help, and your government is Fair telling enough. them that no our more gov- money. No our more government money. is not telling them more money. Well, anymore. saying that the agency, legal aid. legal aid CEO, is saying that you can only use federal funding to cover new immigration refugee services this year. If anyone needs support uh, on legal aid, feel free to call my office. You will, I will guarantee you that you will have legal aid. Don't let all the, all the people that overspend, you know, there has to be a point, uh, Alan, in, in your household, my household, and everyone listening, you can't spend more than what you take in. That's what we've done for 15 years. We're the largest sub-sovereign debt in the world, in the entire world. Our fourth largest line item on our budget is debt. We have to bring that down. It's $12 billion a year. We have to bring that down. We inherited a $15 billion deficit. We're doing it very responsibly. We're down to 11.7, and we could have made massive cuts, which we chose not to do. Uh, we're being very modest. But, Alan, it's always a pleasure speaking to you, and uh, thank you for having me on today. Premier Doug Ford, thank you so much for joining us on the program. All the best.
When we come back, we're going to try to take you to Ukraine, where guess who won? A comedian. A guy pretending to be president is now president. This is the Alan Carter Radio Program. Wow. Welcome back to the radio program. My goodness, always fun when we hear from the premier. You know, we just have, you know, we just do this thing. We're like, ah, was, you know, he'll never, he'll never come on this show. So we just do our own thing. And the next thing you know, he's on the line. And, and premier, did you enjoy the program? But what would you do differently with the program? I'm going to sanitize that place from top to bottom. Well, but that's probably not a bad idea. It's probably not a bad idea. We need a little sanitation around here, a little dirty, a little dirty. Uh, I want to take you to Ukraine, which this is incredible if you've been following this news. Ukraine now has a new president, and this new president is a first-time candidate who stars in a TV sitcom about a high school teacher who becomes president almost by accident, appearing to, and he's appeared to have won both the West and the East in Ukraine. So he plays the part of a guy who accidentally becomes president and now he's accidentally become president and and i mean this sounds funny but remember this is a very volatile part of the world you have russia on one side you have europe on the other and the country itself is at odds with itself what does this election mean for both that country and the peace of the world to talk more about it i am joined by professor melvin levitsky Professor of International Policy and Practice at the Gerald Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan, and Professor is formerly the U.S. Uh, a U.S. diplomat and ambassador. Melvin, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's good to be with you. So this uh, th- this seems like to have come right out of left field. No one saw this coming six months ago. Right, although the uh, the the pre-election polling saw Zelensky, uh, the, new, the new president, as uh, winning by quite a margin and he did he got 70 almost 75 percent of the vote which show tells you a lot about the level of dissatisfaction in uh, in ukraine and and this uh, particularly dissatisfaction with the idea that elite was running the country uh, that there was a rampant con- uh, corruption uh, going on that the um, you know and then the russians the, of course the russians invaded took over crimea uh, a good deal of dissatisfaction, and Zelensky, who actually, it's kind of interesting because Zelensky actually speaks Russian better than he speaks uh, Ukrainian. He was jeered a couple of times for speaking Russian yeah, exactly, at, at events. Exactly, but he, and he's also Jewish, uh, although I, I guess not a practicing Jew. Um, that, um, you know, he was known, it happened in our country, after all, we have, we have a president who was a television star, Sort of uh, playing a presidential had, but, role. I mean, it, the, right. the, the way it lines up is kind of eerie. But tell me about the politics of Mr. Zelensky. I mean, he it, when we see this sort of populist candidate, often they come from the right of the spectrum. Does that add up here? Is not, no, 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 not at all. He's not from the right of the spectrum. He, he, he um, I think his, uh, his image is of a, uh, a sort, he comes from a simple background. He's a, a sensible person. Uh, he didn't try to stir up the the right or any particular uh, faction in uh, in Ukraine. He basically campaigned as a uh, a, uh, a Ukrainian who was not corrupt, who had not played a role in the economy, 
and you know posed against a, a president who had been a big well he was a chocolate manufacturer but uh, many times a billionaire um considered to be a, an oligarch from, from the standpoint yeah he wasn't an oligarch yeah so it's it may be what he wasn't rather than what he was i don't know have you ever seen the movie uh the great peter sellers movie being there uh based oh, on yeah, the jersey Kaczynski. Yeah. like this strikes favorites. me as one of my favorites except that he's not uh, except that he's very aware Remember Peter Sellers in that movie? No, he just kind of floats along on a bunch yeah, of truisms yeah. and and, right. and cliches. But in this case, um, you know, if you look at the campaign, Zelensky actually ran a very, um, what I would call, very clever campaign, a campaign on honesty that he would um, protect Ukraine, that he wasn't an oligarch, uh, even though he, his program was shown, you know, on a TV station, whose president had to flee the country on the basis of corruption and banking uh banking pro- uh scandals and things like that. So it's it's um you know this is there's a worldwide phenomenon that's going on. I see this in a country where I was in uh ambassador in Brazil where corruption really ran a um uh was the main issue in a an election where a kind of um screwball candidate won. Right. Uh so and this is happening this is happening in many places but it's not some of it's right, some of it's left. A lot of it is just against against, what, against elites and perceived against elites. Elites against the um, presumption that the elites run things for their own benefit and don't worry about the people. So I think this is probably what happened with uh, with Zelensky, and he was smart enough to kind of play all those the, the roles of the anti anti elite and the honest uh, the honest both comedian and politician. Melvin Levitsky is a professor of international policy at the University of Michigan. Thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. If I was president, if I was president, if I was president, instead of spending billions on the war, I can use that money so I can feed the poor. Welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for joining us here on this Easter Monday. I hope you had a lovely uh, Easter weekend and so exciting to have the Premier call in, talk to us, and he was really actually with us, which is very nice. And he talked about uh, all the things that he thinks that I got wrong, which is interesting. Wow. So thank you, Premier, for being with us. And now my next guest, I'm excited about this, uh, Farah Nasser is uh, my co-anchor and my work spouse. And she joins us on the line now. Farah, how are you? Good afternoon. I'm good. How are you? Uh, I'm great. Thanks for being on the uh, Mighty Alan Carter radio program. What, what was the name of this program again? It's Oh, yeah, it's the Alan Carter radio program. Yeah, we say it about five times a day. <laughs> the Alan Carter Show. Oh, enough. Uh, I'll your voice for you if you want. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I, let's talk about something that you did. Um because I like to talk about you and your achievements, and you have a TED Talk, which uh, is called The Power of Intellectual Humility. And I, tell you, I listened to this the other day. I know you, you asked me to, and I, I put it off because I'm a terrible work spouse. And then I did, and I was, my goodness, I was moved by it. And I just want to play a little bit of this here now. I'm just going to set this up real quick. This is uh, Farah talking about... Uh, Someone we all work with, someone that the, the both of us work with and is in part of our editorial meetings, and she, and she goes out and she's sort of a difference of opinion with this person, and she sits down, and this is what transpires. He said that in our newsroom, he feels like a minority. 
minority, that's my word. I quickly reminded him that I'm often the only racialized minority at our meetings. And he took a breath and he looked at me and he said, it's not a race thing. It's a political viewpoint thing. Farah, I thought that was so powerful and so interesting, and I think it's going to resonate with a lot of our listeners here. I'm wondering, what did you take away from that when he said that? Yeah, I guess I had just kind of (laughs) made the word uh, or equated the word to race because we hear about it so much. But, you know, it it was interesting to hear that we were both on two sides of the, you know, political spectrum, yet... You know, he he felt isolated, and that that troubled me because I felt like that too, and I don't want anybody to feel like that. So uh, that was really eye-opening. I think for a, a lot of people, they feel that their their viewpoints are sidelined, are laughed at. I know that uh, people who contact me sometimes say precisely that that's what I do when they call in and they complain about MSM and fake news and all of the rest. Mm-hmm. But I guess how do we as journalists combat that somewhat hateful element which is out there with truth and with uh, within sort of making sure that everyone feels you know they're part of the discussion well i think the biggest issue right now is that we don't agree on facts and that's a problem right because there's there's people who see alternative facts and then there's there's those who see things that they think are are scientific and you know quite possibly are not and so i think there right now it's especially with all the information we have out there um you know, that can be very problematic. But I think that when it comes to people's, people's opinions and their viewpoints, I think we can't go into conversations as, as know-it-alls, right? I think we have to be okay, and I think we generally are. When, we, when we're journalists, we, when we first get to a, a scene, we're, we're the most ignorant people there because we're outsiders coming at something. So I think that we have to talk to each other that way. We're just getting so divided right now, and it's because we're, we're not – listening. We're not really listening to people. We're just trying to figure out what we're going to say next, you know, to refute what they're saying. Um, Having said that, when somebody is is saying something that is hurtful to somebody, when somebody is saying something that's dangerous, when somebody is saying something that, again, is very obviously not based on fact, I completely understand, uh, you know, the need to refute that and to disagree, and, and that makes total sense. But there's a way to do things, right? There's a way to speak to people. Um, and I think we all kind of need to just tone it down a notch. Farah Nasser is my co-anchor, and you can see her every noon hour. It's actually, what I recommend is watching Farah anchor the noon news and listen to my radio station at the same time. And she just do that. Yes, yeah, I think so. I think that like that would be a good idea. Don't you think that's a good idea? I think it's a good idea. I, I wish your listeners could hear what happens with us between commercial breaks. I think that would be a great idea. That's the best. That's the that's the best part of the show. You know, that's the best part of the show. Where yeah. where Farah starts counting all the pages and say, no, no, wait a minute, you have two more reads than me, and I don't. <laughs> he gets on the line. How come? Yeah. How come he's on more than me? No, that's not true. That does not happen. Although, to be fair, it has happened with uh, in, in the past with other co-anchors. I'm sure it's happened to you as well. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Thank you, Farah. I appreciate being being with us. Uh, that is it. I'm out of runway. I'm back again tomorrow. Oh,